0: Hey guys, just start here. Just in a second. Let's see. Move my desk. Here we go. You got one of these fancy, fancy standing desks that I'm sitting at. Uh, (laughs) um, So, my name is Andrew Krauss, and I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key over 21 years ago, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors to license their products ever since. If somebody could type in yes, that you can hear me, um, just to verify, that would be great, and we'll get going. So I'll briefly describe while I'm waiting for somebody. Okay, great, I got somebody typing yes, so we're good. See, we got a bunch of questions already. I have been talking literally all day long. It's been a very, very busy Monday, but I'm still gonna pull out an entire hour of Q&A for you guys, I love doing these Q&As. You guys ask great questions. Um, I think you guys think I give great answers. You've said that. Now, let me adjust my webcam here a little bit. There we go. Okay. Oh, it's, it's got to be pretty there, right? Got to have the right background. Oh. Being too picky. That's okay. You got a little light switch. No big deal. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, you're welcome, Tom. I appreciate it. All right. So what... Licensing is when you license a product to a big company, could be a small company, could be a medium sized company, could be a very, very large company, but you don't need to worry about raising money. So it's their money and it's their workforce. So they might have 10 products, 50 products, 200 products, what have you, and they have sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising. They have all these departments. So, and it's a machine and they have all these products. And so when you license your product to them you rent or you lease your product to them because if they don't perform you can take it back so that's why i say rent or lease not sell your idea and you never want to say sell your patent i can explain why in a minute but you're plugging your product into this machine and with all these employees that are doing all this work and now your product's just another one of their products and you want that you know Um, and then what you're really tapping into is existing distribution so let's say it's a new um, shovel, all right? And they're in Home Depot and Lowe's and Target and Walmart and Ace Hardware and Earth Supply. Well, then you're in all those places with your products. So now not every product they have, they'll put in every distribution channel. But if they're there, they're definitely gonna try their best to get your product into all the places where they distribute. And they're pretty much gonna do what they're already doing now. If they do super cheap products, they're gonna make it super cheap. If they do super high end products, they're going to do a super high-end product, they do middle-of-the-road, and you can discuss and negotiate with them what needs to be in there, and you can negotiate anything you want in license contract. But companies will typically distribute and do whatever they're doing now. Yes, your product is new, and that's new, but they're going to keep doing what they're doing. So you want to identify those companies that your product makes sense for their product line and what they're doing, where they're distributing, and what they're doing with the product. So that's what licensing is. So it's a beautiful thing. You don't need to raise money. You don't need to spend 10 grand on a patent. You know, you can spend 75 on a provisional patent. We give our students some software called Smart IP, so you can say patent pending for a year. If you get interest, you can get that company to pay for the patent. Now, when I say that, it doesn't mean that they're going to file the patent. You want them to give you the money, and then you file the patent and then you're going to reference your provisional because the provisional gives you a whole year to see if there's interest and fish off the pier. I know some of you have been attending these for a while, but those of you that are new, I just want to let you know you don't need 10000 for a patent, 5000 for a prototype. You need seventy-five for a provisional patent and quite often you can cobble something together for a prototype or not do a prototype, but all and do a virtual prototype because you're not selling your patent or your prototype. You're selling the benefit of your product. OK. And so if you're like, oh, I can't make the prototype, but I know they can make it. I'm just taking that existing product, putting a hinge on it like this. And when they ask you how we're going to do it and you say that, they're like, oh, OK. So people are blown away that you can actually do that. And our students have been doing that forever. and We've been guiding them to do it. They probably wouldn't have done it unless we told them they could. But I'm telling you, even though you're not you're not an invent rights student, most of you, um, uh, you know, I'm telling you, you can do it. So let's jump in, do a bunch of QA. Um if at times any drink a take of water, take a drink drink a take of water, right? Uh <laughs> it's because of literally it's been a very busy Monday. But you guys have some great questions, so let's get let's get to it. If I still know how to speak. Um uh this is uh it's Paul. Hello Andrew, it's Paul. Um or he's looks like he's Seen me do some webinars. Hello, Andrew. Um, it's Paul. Hasbro is the licensee of my Marvel of Marvel products. Okay, uh, which has rejected my idea. I found a company outside the U.S. The company sells Marvel products. Also, okay. So this is what some people don't understand. Like, for instance, let's talk about Disney. Disney doesn't make most of their own products. They license it to a T-shirt company um a plush company that stuffed animals uh, a company that makes coffee mugs keychains a bazillion other things right and so they have a brand right they have disney they have all the characters they have all the different shows so they go to companies that may, are making products and selling them in stores and it's called brand licensing and they get a royalty instead of for an invention they give you the right to put a Mickey Mouse on a T-shirt. These are for, you know what they do? They do that for large companies, not for you guys. So like Disney will license to a company that is doing um, kids' backpacks, right? And then that, kids, that company that's selling kids' backpacks will pay a royalty for every unit they sell. It's pretty high um, to put Mickey Mouse on or whatever. you got to meet all sorts of criteria for style sheets. And with regards to Paul's um, question, the same thing with Hasbro. So what he's saying is Hasbro has the license for Marvel, but other companies do too. Hasbro is a toy company, right? So for those of you who are new, hopefully I'm not confusing you too much, but I like to talk at a higher level with these Q&As and also simple questions as well. So I'm happy to answer this. So Paul also said, is a non-exclusive agreement between Hasbro um, that has the company worked around it somehow? How do I go about finding the answers? Is there an international law protecting that small company? So what, what, what Paul's confused on is he says, look, I see that Hasbro has the license for, um, for Marvel, Marvel comics. And you know, the, the, shows and movies and all that stuff that they do. And so Marvel probably has contracts with multiple companies, like I said before, different product categories. So I don't think they are doing anything wrong there. So other companies have Marvel licenses too. So it makes it difficult. When you insist, look, it has to have this particular character on it, you're going to need the license to a company making somewhat products in that same space. And there's a difference between a T-shirt and a plush animal right? Maybe companies make t-shirts don't make plush animals, company make plush animals don't make t-shirts. So you have to find a company that makes something in the right product category and already has the license. Because if you go to a company that's making t-shirts and go, or let's say it's an um, innovative plush animal, it moves in a funny way or whatever, the arms move and the kid loves it, right? And you're like, oh, it's gotta be a Mickey Mouse one. Or it's gotta be Descendants. That's a, a Disney show that my my eight-year-old daughter watches, um, you're limiting your list of potential licensees. So sometimes when you license things, um, you can show, like, a generic version of it. Like, let's say it's sports, and you can show a generic football version of it, but you can also show, like, a licensed version that have NFL teams on it, right? And you let them decide. But to go to a company that makes products and say you have to put NFL on it, and they're like, I don't know how to do that. Do you know how to do that? Do you have an NFL license? Because you'll know by looking at a company's product line if they license brands and pay these brands, these uh, TV shows or um, sports teams a royalty. But if they don't do that, they're probably not going to do it. So yeah, they have to already be doing it. Okay, does that make sense? So, um, so no, I mean, so Paul saying, is there an international law that's protecting? Is there an international law protecting that small company? So, you know, it's not they're protecting the small company. They're protect Marvel's protecting themselves because Marvel has a trademark and copyrights on their characters and on their, their their trademark. Let's say it's a particular Marvel. I don't know if Iron Man is Marvel. Let's just say it is because I don't know. I like Iron Man, but I forget if that's Marvel or not. And so that protects them around the world. So they can license products around the world. They might do a license for Iron Man to go on T-shirts or other products in Asia. And then another one for the U.S. These li- brand licensing deals for these big um, companies like Disney and Marvel, they can do them however they want. So, yeah, they're protected with trademarks and copyrights for the most part. Sorry to ramble so much on that, but it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, let's see, Dennis says, and by the way, if you want to type your first name, which Dennis and uh, Paul already have, so I'm not reading your handle if it's a silly handle, but I can do that too. Um, it would be nice when you type your question. My name's Dennis, and I live in the UK. Could you please explain if I sign an NDA with one company, could it mean that I cannot submit my product to other companies? Thanks. Um, okay, so... Uh, no, what you're agreeing to do it with an NDA is to not to disclose anything that they shared with you, if it's a bilateral NDA, um, and anything that you shared with them. So, so if, if they share confidential stuff with you, it's saying that you won't share that confidential information they shared with you with other companies, and they won't share what you share with them with other places unless they have your permission. So it doesn't mean you can't submit to other um, companies unless that's specified in the NDA. And I wouldn't do that because when you're reaching out and you're licensing, you're not reaching out to one or two companies. You're reaching out, we guide our students to reach out to 20 or 30 companies. And inventors, before they come to us, quite often they'll have a very anemic list of two or three companies. And the coach is like, no, given your product, you could reach out here and there and company's making this type of product, and people selling here and there. So no, you shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't limit you. Um, and if if somebody, a company gives you a non-disclosure agreement that does, I wouldn't sign it, you know. Um, but so any just to remind you guys, anything I share tonight is not legal advice. It's, it's just general business advice. It's how we advise our students. And so um, there's my little disclaimer. Contact an attorney before moving forward on anything. Um, So, uh, Dennis also had another quick question. Please tell me if I'm planning to buy the professional mentor that's our one on one coaching. Could you please tell me, do you help to license to on the U in the UK also, or is it only in the US? No, Dennis, we've had students in 65 countries, got tons of students in the UK, and we've had students over 21 years in over 65 countries. You can license. Your product from anywhere. They don't care if you're from the UK or Australia or Asia or Latin America or the US or Canada. If you have a good product, you have a good product. So, one of the things that I think international inventors think, which is not right, so I'll share it. This would be very useful to you. Um, don't limit yourself to your own geography. Um, I'll say it straight up. US and Canadian companies and European companies that are very big in the US and Canada are way more likely to license your product than companies that aren't in the US or Canada. Now, if you're in the UK, I would mostly focus, I would get a US provisional patent, and I would mostly focus on US, Canadian, and European companies that have distribution in the US. Now, can you also reach out to some UK companies? um and try to license them as well of course you can of course you should but um you know we have a lot of students in australia and they call it the the tall poppy syndrome this isn't specifically for licensing but it's an attitude the u.s we're not perfect by any means you guys have probably seen that recently i mean we got we got our issues um but there's this entrepreneurial mindset Right, And really big companies will look at products from individual product inventors at the value of the product. Wow, this product makes sense. And our students do licensing deals with really large companies all the time, medium and small companies too. But in in Australia, they have something called a tall poppy syndrome, which is like basically like we're a big company. Who are you? Which in other words, if a poppy or a flower grows up too high, you just chop it down. right? And I didn't, under, I didn't know this expression because we don't have this expression in the U.S. But and so like in Australia, uh, you know, they still have that and they still have that more so in Europe than the U.S. But we have plenty of students license products to European companies. Now, if they're just in Europe and they don't sell a single thing in the U.S., they're going to be a little less likely than the companies in the U.S. When European companies are in the U.S., they, they adopt more of an open innovation policy, receiving ideas from the outside. But absolutely do not limit yourself, if you live in Europe or anywhere else, to your geography. There's no need to. Now, you need to familiarize yourself with U.S. retailers. Very easy to do. You can do it online. Um, And when you need to make phone calls, yeah, you get yourself a Skype account and you add $10 to it and you call the U.S. for like two, three cents a minute. No big deal. Um, they don't care where you live. And yes, you're going to file a U.S. provisional patent. All our international students just file a U.S. provisional patent. in a roundabout way it preserves your right in some ways, I'm not going to go into details, to file later internationally. So that, that's a common question that I get. Um, but all our students always focus on the U.S. and Canada. And you can focus on the country that you're in as well, in European uh, Europe and Australia and other places as well. But most of the licensing deals we see are in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, let's see. Leonard, hi, Andrew. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the things a good product developer might purposely do to justify a higher royalty and some of the things that may decrease the, the amount of your royalty agreement? These live Q&As you do are awesome. Thank you. Um, okay. So, Leonard, um, I, 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 it varies. So I've seen students do really great royalty deals and they literally didn't even have a prototype. They set a virtual prototype and they got it. And they said, well, how are we making this? The student, the inventor's like, well, it's just like that and that, but I just changed this. And i oh, that's enough. That's enough to, we can go get some quotes wherever, you know, for manufacturing this thing. And, And they come on back and it's not like, well, because you came to me with this production-ready prototype, I'm going to give you a 10% royalty instead of 5% royalty. I don't see that happening. Um, it's more the mindset of the company and what you can negotiate. I don't find that doing things, it's basically craziness to go out and file a patent, to think that you, you're going to get more in the way of royalties if you have an issued patent as opposed to a pending patent it's just not the case you know and to file a patent and to sit around waiting one to three years for it to issue so you can say it's issued and then to get out there is just freaking stupid and why it's stupid is the markets move very fast these days so you want to file a provisional you're selling the benefit of the product you're not selling your patent and if they show interest and they like the product license it now if you had gone out and like ventured the product and sold it yourself and let's say you've been selling it for many years and you've got 10,000 units in your, in your garage or warehouse and you've got distribution in another 20,000 stores. Okay, you could kind of be like selling your company along with doing a licensing deal. But who wants to take all that risk just to do a licensing deal? Why? And it's really not necessary. The, the belief we have and the experience we have is that you can do licensing deals just with a cell sheet and a virtual prototype, and sometimes you need to do a prototype. Um, now, are there some companies that they'll, they'll beat you up about what you haven't gotten done? Oh, we need to do so much here and there. But you know what? Sometimes those same companies, even if you had it done, they would make some other excuse for the reason why they're giving you a lower for royalties. So in my opinion, a lot of times, in negotiations negotiation is negotiation. It's not always about what you got done prior or what you didn't get done. It's about how tough a negotiation and negotiators they are. So um, I don't think there's any like, a ton of stuff that you need to do like, oh, I need to do this to get a higher royalty. I think that's BS. I think, you know, you, you do your sell sheet, do a virtual prototype, maybe you do a prototype or you don't, and you freaking license it and you negotiate whatever the hell you can negotiate. But to think that, I mean, if you think about it, the things that some people may think of, oh, if I have an issued patent as opposed to a pending patent, I might get more money. Um, with some really, really difficult industries, not the vast majority of industries, like medical supplies, like it's a, it's a new medical device. Like there's certain industries that will just beat you up about the patentability about it and this or that. But there's ways of dealing with that, too. So they can say, well, we're not going to pay you unless you get a patent on this. Well, hey, that's fine. I can guarantee you get a patent on something every time. Put some weak claims in them. Patent office will always give you a patent. But let's say they beat you up only if you get these claims. I see that very infrequently. But if they did, um, you could just negotiate. Okay, great. Only if I get those claims or only if I get a patent. If you don't have a patent, but I see that very rarely. So I don't think there's a bunch of stuff to do to get a higher royalty rate. Here's what I think. There's things to do to get the interest, to get the deal on the table, and to close the deal. And that is good marketing. So they really understand. So here's what maybe what you guys weren't expecting, I would say. If you do good marketing and they see it, they go, wow. If our customers saw this thing, they would want to buy it. That's what it's all about. It's about doing a good sell sheet, doing a good video, showing them what their customer is going to see so that they want to license it. It's about getting the deal on the table. It's not about getting a higher or lower royalty rate. I mean, of course, you want to negotiate a higher royalty rate, but I don't see the things that our students do or don't do will get it for the most part. There's always exceptions, and there's always difficult companies or difficult industries, but. It's about the product. It's about having a good product. So um, with that said, having a good solid product that has a clear point of difference with regards to all the other products in that space, that's what will get you a, a, a deal. And it's kind of like more of a matter of like, how stingy is this company? How bad do they want the product itself? So it's about having a good product. And sometimes slight variations on existing products are easier to license than mind-blowing, wow, this is so cool, sort of thing, you know. But again, that varies with every company, what they look for. Some companies are like they're very risk-adverse. So they would rather license something like that's pretty much like what they're selling, but oh, we got this little extra something, it's gonna give us a leg up, and they're just not comfortable with big changes. Other companies are like, Whoa, this is cool, this is gonna blow the the, the lid off of an industry or what have you. Every company is different on what they're looking for. So I'm more concerned about you getting interest in doing a good marketing piece and then wanting to license it than whether it's a higher or lower royalty. You know, it's all negotiable and that's part of the negotiation. It's not so much what you did. Does that make sense? So uh, I'm just trying to give perspective. I've been doing this for 21 years. So um, I'm just, that's my take on it. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay, uh, Marlon. uh, Hi to all and Andrew. If we have a nice concept for, let's say, a toy or a board game, and that idea demands some electronic parts and touch-sensitive monitor, or else, how do we check if it's possible to make? Okay, so he's got a toy or board game that demands some electronics and touch-sensitive parts. Electronics can be more difficult, so here's what I suggest: if you're not an electronics expert, which most inventors aren't, um, you can look at similar things, Marlin, that are out there, similar board games, similar toys, and you can make assumptions. And so when they say, "Well, how are we going to do this?" You know, "Well, there's that, and it's selling for $59.95, and it has essentially the same features, but I'm doing it a little bit different. Like it has a touch screen, like that more or less that we use. It has the same number of buttons. It has." Somewhat the same functionality, maybe completely different toy, completely different play factor. But you can cite similar things, and they're like, oh, well, not only can they do that, but they can do it at that price. And you just tell them what the difference is, and that is literally verifying the manufacturability and even the pricing maybe of it. You now, sometimes it's like a combination. Well, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like that. And then these prices are at these products. And I know that you could make it because they could do it, and you you might even find these features or um, of these different products. They might not even be in toys; they might be in a different product category. And you cite these things. So, but if it's so, sometimes what if you're changed to the product, you understand that piece of it, right? And but you don't understand all the technology, but you see other people doing something in that space. Well, then you don't have to understand the whole thing. So you can say, well, okay, it's, we're going to work more or less like that, but um, this is what I'm doing that's unique. And they're like, oh, I get that. So, But if something's highly complex, like if you're like – I gave this example to somebody just before I got on here, actually. I gave this example before. Don't be this inventor. Well, I, I've got this. Um, I got this new product. It's a robot, and it jumps up on your roof and shingles your house, so you don't need to pay day laborers and – you're not going to fall off the house. You don't need workers comp insurance and the robots going to be super efficient. And the, the, the company that makes uh, robots or roofing equipment's like, uh, well, that sounds great. How do we make that? And you're like, I don't know, but I think you guys should do it. Okay. That's wacky ass inventor territory, right? Don't be that guy. Right. But to, to find things that are similar and to understand the change. So if something is highly, highly technical, And your addition to it, you have no idea how it's done. You should be working on that product. Or you can find and spend tons of money with engineers that will figure it out for you. But maybe you should take it down a notch, work on a simple kitchen gadget or something like that. Right. Um, So, Marlon, I can't answer your question specifically because you can't publicly disclose your invention with everybody listening in here. But. I can say, hopefully that has helped you kind of gauge it. And if you're like, oh, yeah, that helps, Andrew. Yeah, I could see other examples. Now, most inventors go, well, but there's nothing like it. I'm like, there's always something like it, always, 100% of the time. So it doesn't have to be like your invention, but you can cite the technology or the fact that there's this other product that has a screen and does this or that, you know. Um, And if you're like 70% sure they can do it, but you can't figure out all the little details, but you got the main components, then I would go for it. Um, Kevin says hi Andrew when developing a product is it the responsibility of the inventor to know the intricate workings oh this is similar to the last one intricate workings of the invention or is the idea alone enough to approach a company well like I said don't be the wacky inventor it says I invented a robot that will do this or that and say how's it working go I don't know I don't know nothing about robotics don't be that guy um but you should you should have a fair idea of how it's going to be done you know but by looking at similar things you can make assumptions now sometimes you can do research and all that you can contact the contract manufacturer and figure out if things can be done um but it it shouldn't be i have this idea and you haven't worked out the basics of it you know what is your what's the secret sauce is you have this little point of difference and that's unique and You know they can figure out the rest. That's fine if you can do that. But you need to understand your point of difference and be fairly certain that they can do your point of difference, like 70% sure. Um, Okay, Uh, Nick said, love what you do. What are the ways to value an invention or a patent? I'm doing research for companies looking to sell unused patents. I'm doing research for companies looking to sell unused patents interesting okay so if that's the case what I'll say Nick is most patents are absolute garbage now for intellectual property experts intellectual property is just a fancy way of saying patents copyrights trademarks you know sort of thing but most of the time we're referring to patents say that 80% of patents are weak to junk I think that's a little too much but a lot of people they they just Run out file patents because their aunt or uncle said, well, That's a great idea, you better get patent on that. And they went and got a patent, and they just said, Hey, patent attorney, patents for me. And they didn't think about all the variations, workarounds, and improvements. And then the patent attorney didn't do it either. And you have garbage patents, so people are like, and They're easy to work around. And people say, well, well, I'm gonna file a provisional patent, Andrew. Does that mean people can work around me easy? No. Not if you think about the other variations. You'd be a good inventor. Think about the other ways of doing it. And you include those variations in your provisional patent. Um, so if you're looking to have, you're doing research for companies looking to sell unused patents, I think that's cool. But figure out if the product's viable because people, not just individuals, inventors, but companies file patents on stuff that doesn't make any sense as well. They do the same thing. So don't be trying. So figure out if it's marketable. I don't care if somebody has a patent. That doesn't mean anything. It just means somebody ran to an attorney and got a patent. Does the product, does its benefits make sense? Is it licensable? Is it sellable? And then if you feel like it makes sense. Um, so yeah, it's what you're asking. What do you, how do you value an invention or a patent? So what I would say first just forget about valuing the patent altogether. Who cares about that? the product isn't marketable who cares if it's patentable so you're not valuing the patent at first you're evaluating the product so what you want to do is you want to look at all the products in that micro category so if you're doing um say what i don't know let's say uh if you're doing you know those leashes you know so these are eyeglasses and you know, those leashes that go around the eyeglasses that hold them. I, I don't wear one because then you look like an old guy, right? Um, but my dad has those in his hangar. But um, so you need to understand the micro category of eyeglass leashes, right? And so if you had an eyeglass leash that you're trying to work on, Nick, licensing for a company or helping them um, utilize their own use patents, you have, you have to look at all the eyeglass leashes and then go, does theirs make sense given everything in the marketplace? And if it does, then you can evaluate how strong the patent is. But I wouldn't spend two seconds looking at how strong the patent is. You need to understand how marketable the product is first. So patenting stuff for patent's sake is just complete garbage. And so one of the, one of the um, things you guys should learn not to do is never say, I want to sell my patent completely wrong. You're not selling your patent. You're selling the benefit of your product. Right? And you're selling the product and its benefits. You're not selling your patent. Never ever go to a company and say, I want to sell you my patent. So first off, when you when you license, you're not selling outright 99.5% of the time. You're licensing it. And under the licensing contract, they have to pay you royalties. They have to pay you royalties every quarter for whatever they sell. And if they don't perform you can take it back, and there's all sorts of clauses in the contract that lets you take it back. So you're renting or you're leasing your product. You're not selling it. You're definitely not selling your patent. Um, so so don't. So those, those are some things that will help you, Nick. Um, uh, I don't know if that's a good use of your time. I think it's interesting. I've always thought that um, companies do file patents, and then they don't – Maybe it's kind of outside the realm of their product distribution channel. I think there is a market for inventors that want to go to companies and help them utilize their unused intellectual property, unused patents, and maybe license that. out. I think there's something there. It seems tremendously time-consuming to me to look through all that stuff. Um, But I would always not spend a lot of time evaluating the patent, but go, what's the product? What's its benefit? And looking at patents, sometimes you can't tell. Because they're not marketing pieces, which is like pff, you want to shoot yourself in the head. Because it's a, a good patent and a good marketing piece are two totally different things. So now you got to spend all this time figuring out what the hell is this patent talking about, right? So it could be a tremendous time suck. So if you can find somebody in the company if you're trying to help companies license their patents that are just sitting around, um, they can just tell you what each of these things is. Sometimes it's on technology that they don't even know where it would be applied to. You know, stuff like that was a very interesting question, Nick. So I think it's a viable thing to do. You just have to figure out how to make that make sense for you, so you're not wasting your time. Um, yeah, Nick said, in my experience, companies do not know the value of their paths if they're not used. Yeah, I agree. And do you want to spend a bunch of time realizing that they're a bunch of garbage, or you maybe you know how to pick through the garbage and find a few good ones, and then you. Do something with them, and you go, "Hey, if I license this, can I have 25% of the royalties, or 50% of the royalties, or whatever?" Because just sitting there, and they're like, "Yeah, okay." Um, so it's it's interesting. Uh, Tom says, "How do I think and build upon existing products?" I don't know what you mean by that, Tom, but I like the question. I'll uh, so. One of the things that I always talk about is you can build on how do you think on and build on existing products is if you have a widget and you reach out to 30 companies and let's say 28 don't show interest, two show interest, maybe you do a deal, maybe don't, but the 30 companies you reach out to, if you work on another widget in the same product category, you've got the each person's name, phone number, email at the very least, their email and their name. And so when they're not interested in product number one in that product category, you say, no problem. Are you open to receiving more ideas? And they they reviewed your products. They probably are, probably 98% of them are. And then when you work on another product in that same category, you look at their product line. You don't just spam them because now you're starting to look like an amateur. You spam them. But you look at their product line and you go, you know what? 15 out of these 30 companies for my second product, are right match. Let's say it's in gardening and you got another gardening product and you're like, you know, some of these aren't right, but 15 of them are and now you don't even need to make that relationship. You already have it. So one of the, and I don't know if this is your question because your question wasn't that specific, but this is my answer. You, you said, how do you think on and build upon existing products? You can build on by working on one project, you're building the relationship just by showing me your first product and now you've got that relationship and now you're going to utilize you're going to find Come up with more ideas in that category and just send it to them. And now you can focus more on inventing and not as much on building the relationships. You always keep reaching out, building relationships with more companies. So that's a beautiful thing. It's so cool, and it doesn't really make sense to work on one product in one category and go. I'm never going to work in this category again. Now you can do that, and you can jump around in different categories. Do a toy one day, do a gardening product next day, a medical device the next day. But when you do that, you're not utilizing the, the uh, relationships you already made. So when you get rejected for each product, you didn't get rejected. They just said no to that product. You did a great thing. You made a relationship. You know, so it's a beautiful thing. Um, how else could I interpret your question? How do I think and build upon existing products? So you, your question may have been something different. It may have been um, look at existing products and, and how do I invent for the marketplace, so to so look, Google Images is my favorite. If you get on Google Images and you type in gardening trowel or barbecue spatula or, like I said earlier, you know eyeglass leashes or what have you, and you study a micro category with no invention. Most inventors don't do this. This is the ultimate way to invent. Yes, the ultimate. If you're nodding off, maybe I got your attention now. So this is the ultimate way to invent. Don't have an invention. Study a microcategory. So let's say eyeglass leashes, the leashes that go on the eyeglasses, right? And and kind of resist trying to invent. Study every freaking eyeglass leash. You could probably become an expert in eyeglass leashes in about four to six hours. It would be fun. So when you come up with an invention, you study the category, you know, you're trying to prove nothing like it exists, which is the wrong thing to do. But you don't have the anxiety when you already have an invention. You just study them all. And maybe if, you're not going to have the energy to then invent, but you know, and you could do it in a couple settings, sittings that is. And then maybe the next day in the shower or driving, or maybe you go back and you look at all your research. You can't just keep it all in your head. you got to bookmark all that stuff, all these different products you found, all the different eyeglasses. Oh, there's five over here that do this. There's ones that are like this. There's ones that are like this. And then you go, and then you go, well, what's missing? And you might come up with a variation of something that's already out there. Oh, there's like eight like this, but, God, they're like all the same. Why don't I just make a slight tweak? Like there wouldn't be eight eyeglass leashes that are in that like micro category of a micro category if they weren't selling. So I know these are selling. There's a bunch like this. If I make a slight tweak, then another company may be like, well, they're, all those are selling and we've got something a little bit better. So we want to license it. So this is the ultimate way to invent. Study a micro category first and then invent. So I don't know if that's what you were talking about, Tom. So I, I gave, I, I created two questions for you. I think one of those two answered your question, which was how do I think about and build upon existing products? Um, uh, okay. William says, you mentioned LinkedIn. Which type of account do you recommend? They seem to have four price points. Rocket seems to be, Rocket Reach seems to be another one too. Um, William, the only uh, category we advise our students to do are uh, membership level on LinkedIn is free. We guide people strictly just to use the free version. Um, Our LinkedIn for licensing expert, Benjamin Harrison, he does talk about the paid version, but I would say 99 to 95 to 99% of our students or InventRight students. Just use the free version. You don't need to pay for anything. Um, And there's a lot of techniques that Benjamin teaches you specifically we've created a a program as part of our coaching program. It's included specifically how to use LinkedIn to reach out to marketing managers specifically for licensing. We give our students templates and things to use there. So, um, you, you, you really, you don't need to pay. You're wasting your time. If you do, there's a few instances where it might make sense, but you really don't need to. Um, and you know, I was on the last LinkedIn, um, smart pitch session with Ben and he, we had some really cool tools that actually some of our students shared with us and Ben knew about them too. And he's sharing about them um, where you start to do some searches on LinkedIn and it starts to block you. They make you feel like you need to pay. And there's some external search tools you can use to get around that. So you don't need to pay. It's kind of expensive with the uh, LinkedIn. Um, so you just use the free version. Uh. Jason, hi, Andrew. Hope all is well around. Ten companies rejected me, but said my idea. Well, first of all, they didn't reject you. And they just said no to your product. But you, you said rejected me and said my idea was brilliant. And good luck getting it to market. Does that mean my invention is still worth pursuing? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Over the years, I've noticed some students really like that. And some students irritates the hell out of them. So it's like... A whole bunch of companies told me they think it's great but not right for them. And, and, and it's so irritating. And other people are like that, that gives them a shot in the arm and makes them feel good. So what might be happening there is it, it might be a great idea. They recognize the great idea, but it's not right for their product line. Or it actually is right for their product line, but they tell you they're not interested because they just don't have time to take it on. Like they got three different bosses giving me all sorts of projects or inundated with email and that marketing manager just isn't ready to take on another project. So don't think they're they don't even it's not even that they don't like your product. So when you're licensing, you'll get a lot of non-specific no's, like not at this time, not a right match for us, and you don't know what's going behind the scenes, and they won't always tell you. You can ask, but they won't always tell you. Most of the time they won't tell you. So yeah, Jason, I would keep on going. I would make sure to identify that you're contacting the right types of companies. They might be saying it's brilliant and not showing interest because you're contacting the wrong type of companies and you start get, changing your list up, get to the right companies, before you know it, you have a licensing deal. Um, also, for the reason I just stated before, don't hesitate. Like, if you can't license you reach out to other companies. Six or eight months from now, just blast it out to everybody that said no. And you'll get them it's timing like before, they were too busy. They said no because they were too busy, not because they didn't like your product. And they won't tell you that. I really like it, but I'm too busy. I can't take it on because they know the inventor will then hound them, so they can't say that. But you reach out six months later, and they said no. They didn't give you a reason. Don't reach back out to company. Said no because of this, and you can't fix that. Don't do that. That's obnoxious. But just resend it out to them six months, eight months later. I guess students slice all the time away. So, and you just with maybe one or two of them. You get you hit them right timing, and their boss said we need new products two weeks earlier. So most inventors never do this. I only started guiding our inventory students to do this about seven years ago. We've been around for 21 years. So only the last one-third of our existence was I telling people to do this. And I was I was doing it because I was trying to get people past it. they were crying because they didn't license their first product. I was just trying to get them to move on to their next product. But as a as a result, because I told so many people that i We started seeing students licensing stuff that way, and now it's a standard part of our approach so Jason I would that's a really good sign um, but there might be something you're doing wrong, maybe wrong companies, but they're all bunch of people said it's really cool, so that's fantastic. I would not give up on it um, uh, I don't have a real name, miss Toe. Toto um, I want to cold call, call some companies to pitch my idea what should I expect and should I call or email or both. Um, you should call email and use LinkedIn too. you know um, Some of our students they like LinkedIn so much they stop calling. That's not good because some companies they just won't get back to you on LinkedIn. They're just not on there. They only go on there when they need a job. Other people are on LinkedIn every day. So if the company is on your list of companies to call and they're not getting back to you on LinkedIn, you've got to pick up the phone and call. So I would call, email, um, and reach out on LinkedIn. So you said, what should I expect? Well, what you should realize is you don't need to be a self-schmuck to do this. You're, you're, you don't need to pitch. You're just asking permission to send your sell sheet or your video. Now your sell sheet or your video needs to rocket. They need to get and understand your product in 6 to 10 seconds. Very few inventors that aren't invent right students do I see them have good enough marketing materials. I see inventors with horrendous, horrendous marketing materials. Like, oh my god, you could work all day long. If you send that, it's never going to get licensed, Not because of the product, but because your marketing sucks, right? Um, then I see other, it's like, okay, but you don't want okay. You want, I get it in six to 10 seconds. Like, when I say, okay, like maybe if they thought on it and they noodled on it for five minutes, they could figure out what the product is. That's okay. But nobody will take the time to do that. Because if they have to take five minutes to figure it out, they're going to think my customers will too and they got other stuff to do. So they need to get it in six to 10 seconds. So it's very rare that I see a non-advent right student that sends, that sent me a sell sheet and I'm like, wow, this is right. I do see it sometimes. Um, and sometimes it's like, I I talk to people that are professional marketers but because of their own product, they just don't see it. And you think that a professional marketer would do a great job, not always the case. Now I do see exceptions, it's not always the case. but. Um, So make sure you have a good marketing piece. I'll give you guys a free way to test that out. Put it on your computer, preferably a laptop, but it could be a desktop. Find a friend, family member, or anybody, really. Can't be anybody you've ever talked to your invention about. Put it on the computer. Stand behind the computer. Don't say a damn thing. And look at their eyes. Stare at them. And see if they're looking confused. If they start asking questions, do not say anything. Just the fact that they ask a ton of questions shows they're not getting it right away. And also the look on their face will tell you a lot. So there's a free way to test your marketing piece. And, you know, it works great because it could work with a family member that's super supportive. It could work with Uncle Joe that just thinks he's super critical. It doesn't matter. They're, you can look at their expressions. It's not always what they say. It's their expressions. Um, and, and then you can go, okay, this isn't good enough. I've got to get it fixed up. You know, an easy way to do it is just sign up with our coaching program. Our coach will guide you through all the marketing material, you know, but um, not every not all of you can afford that. So and I understand that. It's fine. Um, let's see what else we got here. We have about 12 minutes left. Um, let me do some questions from people that we've got to. Uh, I have no idea what this means, Tom. We'll figure it out. What is the formula for companies to spend time, money, and risk in a person's idea? Um, How much... I'm going to read it like you wrote it. A person's idea, how much money do they expect to make with your product, and how much money do you expect to make off licensing? Okay. So what's the formula? So the, the formula is have a great marketing piece. So a sell sheet or a video. uh, Most flower students do a sell sheet. And the formula is to show them what they would show their customer. So they show interest and want to talk to you, and you can further the conversation. That way you don't need to be a salesperson, right? And you want to get get their interest. And what you're going on is their gut. They're, They're in this product category. They're a marketing manager. They know all the products in that space. You want to intrigue them and go, "Oh yeah, if our customers saw this, they would want to buy it." So um, they're just going by their gut, you know, and they know that space, and that's basically what you're what you're going by. So, how much money do you expect to make? You know, it could be two thousand, it could be two hundred thousand. It depends on the product. Now, if a company is big, you can think big. Because it depends on the product. You know, they can sell 20,000 units a year. They can sell 2 million a year. It depends. Is it a 99-cent product? Is it a $500 product, right? But the, the three, I'm trying to do three. Three. Uh, the, um, the three components, I share this on pretty much every Q&A, are one, um, the royalty rate, right? Is it a 5% royalty? Is it 8% royalty? What's the royalty rate? And then the price of the product, is it a 99-cent product? Is it a $500 product? Because you get the royalty rate on the price of the product, right? But here's the most important thing. The volume. So the whole point of licensing is licensing to a big company, a crazy volume that you could never do. Yeah, you could sell stuff on eBay and sell 500 units a year, or even 5,000 units a year. But maybe they can sell half a million units a year, and you're getting a royalty on every one. And It depends on the product. But, but the way you can figure out how much money you can make is the royalty rate times the price of the product times the volume being sold right that's how you figure out how much money you can make so you can never gauge that ahead of time you have to talk to the company it might be a really big company but they got small plans for your product it might be a just a large not a giant company but they got big ideas for your product so you need to interview them about what they're going to do with the product and then you can put the royalty rate the price of the product and the volume that they can commit to and you can figure out what kind of royalties you can earn yearly this isn't a buyout thing. You never sell your product outright. You will never get what it's worth that way. You'll always earn more money as you sell the product. You get paid royalties quarterly, okay, every quarter. So if you're earning 50K a year in royalties and it sells for five years, that's a quarter million dollars. Over five years, not give me a quarter million dollars. That's stupid. For those of you that are new, you never ask for that. That's crazy inventor territory. Um, maybe the product's earning you 20000 a year and it sells for five years. Or it sells for 10 years. Let's say so it's, it's 20,000 a year, it sells for 10 years, that's $200,000. But how many products sell for 10 years? Let's say it just sells for five years, and it's earning you twenty k a year. It's hundred k. But you have moved on to other products, right? And now you license another product, and that one is earning you thirty k a year. And another one is earning you another product, and students that are earning $100,000 a year. There's a wide variety of how much money you can make. And Stephen and myself here in Event, right, we do not sell to get rich quick. So it's going to depend heavily on your product and what the company is going to do with it. And, and this having delusions that you're going to make millions overnight with licensing is truly delusional. You know, you, you won't. Can you make millions over time with one product? Yes, on some products. But if you're going to be a millionaire or whatever, you're probably going to do it by licensing more than one product, you know, and over time. And any inventor that is passionate about coming up with ideas and is realistic is going to be okay with that. And when we coach and mentor our students, if somebody's not okay with that, that they're not going to license every product they work on, then I don't want them as a student because they're, they're off. Because you will not license every single product you work on. Nobody does. You know. And you, but here's a big part of the event-right approach. If you're not spending $10,000 on a patent, $5,000 on a prototype every time you come up with an idea, you can do this forever. Spend $75 on a provisional patent, a few bucks on a sell sheet, a few bucks on a virtual prototype, maybe some prototype you cobble together. And you can work on licensing products. And you always have the financial bandwidth to move on to more products. That is a crux of the invent right approach. You will not license every single product you work on. You need to be okay with that. And so, you know, and and it's, it's not a get rich quick scheme. Can you make a lot of money with licensing? Absolutely, but it's not overnight. If you did a deal today, it takes companies, you know, three to nine months to launch the product, maybe more. And then you get paid your royalties quarterly. So it's got to sell for three months before you get that royalty. So even if they started selling it today, you know, it's going to be three more months before you start to get that royalty. So for almost all deals, it's almost always... A year or more before you start to see royalties. Now, can you get them, negotiate to pay for the patent? So you you file the provisional, get them to give you an advance on royalties, you give that money to your attorney, your attorney references the provisional, so you didn't have that money out of pocket. Yeah, you can negotiate that quite often. Sometimes maybe they're hard-ass about it and they're like, no, we, we, want, we don't want to pay for the patent. If you want to file it, great, or we want you to file it. And maybe you get some small advance and that helps you pay for the patent. That's fine. But you know you've got a deal on the table it 's a really big company that that's okay so uh yeah i don 't even remember whose question that that was that was Tom that was a great question Tom um, so it can vary dramatically. Are you going to try to license something that's super nichey? you know and it's only going to sell two thousand units a year? hell no doesn't make your you 're not going to be happy with those royalty checks. You can, I joke that you can have delusions of grandeur and think really big because you're trying to license to these really big companies, right? And so that's fine. That's good. But you're getting a small royalty per unit. I mean, sometimes companies, they only have 20% profit margin. For them to give you a 5% royalty is very generous. You know, and they're taking all the risk and doing all the work and you keep in your day job or you're working on licensing of their products. It is a great trade-off. It's a great exchange and these corporations, they're not creative. Some of them are, but most of them aren't. The the people that have been in these product categories forever, whether it's their internal product developers, and the marketing people, their brain is is stagnant. And then you come out from the outside and you're thinking different. They need you. Never undervalue your creativity. They don't have that. They need you. Yes, they have all other stuff that you don't have. The money, the workforce, the distribution, the sales the manufacturing all that but never undervalue your creativity i think secretly or subconsciously inventors undervalue themselves don't do that you have something they don't have okay um boy I sound like bad there but i'm just i'm just saying you guys have something that is truly magical But it means nothing without skills to make it happen, without the boring business skills that we teach you to make licensing deals happen. And everything besides coming up with the idea is going to be boring and drudgery compared to coming up with the idea. The idea is maybe 10, maybe even 5%. The rest of it's everything else. And if you don't do that, you're just like an artist painting in their garage and you're never trying to sell your artwork. You're never going to arts and crafts fair, or trying to get it in museums or trying to do anything with it. That's just sad. So you need to get it in front of the companies that can sell it at the stores so it can get into people's houses and people can enjoy your artwork. So your guys were essentially product artists. Artists struggle with marketing their artwork and inventors struggle with marketing their product. Um, you know and so it's it's licensing is is a very powerful very safe way to get your products out there but you have to put yourself out there and be willing to do that and that's not easy to do you know when and do things you're uncomfortable with because but when you do things you're uncomfortable with, that's when you grow as a person so you have to do that you have no choice so whether that's Watching your YouTube show, reading our books and then going, going for it on your own or signing up with our coaching program and having a coach hold your hand through it or a negotiation coach helping you. Whatever you want to do, you have to do it as part of who you are. If you're, if you're, I'm going to say it. If you're too freaking lazy to do the work, you're not an inventor. You're just a person with ideas. A person with ideas that doesn't try to get them out there is not an inventor. The second you call your first company, that's when you're an inventor. You're just a creative person with product ideas until then. I know that's a weird delineation, but you get the idea. So I just want to encourage you guys to do it, whether it's with us through our coaching program or on your own, you have to do it. And if you're don't, if you like, yeah, it seems like too much work, Andrew. I just like being creative. You need to, you need to stop watching this question and answer you need to stop watching the YouTube show. You need to stop reading your books because if you're not going to take action, what's the point? And it's not about patents and prototypes, it's about reaching out to companies. So, uh, but sorry to go off on a tangent there. I think it's good mindset stuff, right? You know, hope you guys appreciate that. Uh, we have one minute left. Uh, uh, Amanda said, "When you sign up for InventRight, can you request a certain coach or negotiations expert?" Well, we just have one negotiation coach—that's Paul. But we've got a ton of licensing coaches, so the licensing coach guides you through everything. You're with them for everything, and then we add our negotiation coach to the mix when you get into a negotiation. He tells you what to say back to an email, tells you what to say on the phone, next phone call. He guides you through it all. Now, um, I lost my. Okay, that was Amanda. Um, are there certain people I talk to and work with after watching your videos for years? Okay. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Amanda, you can request a specific coach. Our coaches don't specialize in product categories. Almost all of them can do just about any category. Licensing is licensing. But if you've seen certain coaches that you really liked on our YouTube show, you can absolutely request them. Sometimes, like, coaches' calendars will get full, and we won't be, like, putting people with them and we'll put people over here and then their calendar gets less full and we start putting people with them again. It's also dependent on the times they work. Different coaches work different times. They're like, oh, it has to be mornings Eastern. And this particular coach works just evenings, you know, or later afternoons. That might be problematic. But yeah, if you sign up, you can talk to um, uh, our customer service manager or myself And we can make it work. So even if you're like, oh, I just really want this particular coach, we could stuff one more student in their calendar and it would probably be fine. Um, We have availability for every coach every week. Um, All right, cool. So we want a full hour. Um, I had a really long day today. I literally spoke like literally all day, and then this is at the end of my day. Um, But I get energized by your guys' great questions, your positive energy. Um, Every, you guys say such great things, Beth. Thank you, Clyde, thank you. Um, uh, Kevin, thank you. Uh, Tom, every, everybody, 91, Sam, 911, Thank you. Um, G- uh, Gemini. thank you everybody. Um, you guys energize me at the end of the day on Mondays when I do this. We've been doing this. I've been doing this um, every Monday during the entire COVID thing. I don't have a date that I plan to stop doing. I to do it forever. Um, it's not the same as one-on-one coaching, but hopefully it helped you. Um, also, I know you guys have some questions about coaching. I don't like to do things where I'm like seamlessly shameless, plugging our coaching and stuff, but I don't mind asking some questions. Um, that's like old school selling. You don't want to like. People like our YouTube show. Oh, so what I need you guys to do. Do me a favor if you like the Q&A, which I hope that most of you did. It seems like you did. Please click on the subscribe button right there on the YouTube video right now. We're trying to get from 40,000 subscribers to 80,000. I'd like to do that within the next six months. So it's not like when you subscribe to something, you can ignore it. It's not like you'll get spam emails and stuff. It, it doesn't work like that. It, just, it really helps us out. And then give us thumbs up on videos you watch and stuff and comment on videos. That helps as well. Um, but please, if you really liked it, just say okay. The way I pay Andrew back is click on the subscribe button. If you're already subscribed, you don't need to do it. Please help us out there. Oh, the other thing, all if you if you um, I think we're at we're at 700 uh, five star reviews, I believe, um, for our book One Simple Idea on Amazon. So it's called One Simple Idea, and we'd like to get to 800. I believe it's 800. So if you've read One Simple Idea and you want to write a review for it on Amazon, that would be another great way you can help us out. Um, And I think we're coming close to our 10-year anniversary for that book. So I want to remind you guys, take care, keep inventing. Coming up with ideas is part of who you are. So make it happen. Get out there. Reach out to companies. And we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys.